Nice, nice. So we'll just uh, just run with it. Yeah, I kind of thought that. Uh, I mean, trying to trying to have some of the mini episodes for like weeks between main episodes for all of you rabid fans <laughs> um, <laughs> who just can't get enough of us. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of the, like the ones we put out so far, you know, a bunch of those have just been parts sort of edited from other episodes that were like a digression too far or uh <laughs> or us talking for half an hour before eventually remembering like oh right we had a movie that we were going to talk about or <laughs> so instead of hoping that you know that would keep happening i thought like oh maybe let's let's do some that are sort of intentionally mini um, and they have a little idea. We're not watching a movie for these. We're not whatever. It's something much smaller. And so I kind of thought that like formative horror media experiences would be an interesting thing to talk about. Like the stuff that we watched uh, when we were kids or teenagers or whatever or read or listened to whatever it is. But, you know, that like really got under our skin and made it feel like this is like a genre or an area of art that I want to pursue further. Well, that just, I, now you just gave me another <laughs> that's, one. That's fine. <laughs> I had three. I had three, but now I have another. I'm just going to keep Yeah, I, I figured we so. would probably like, you know, you would say something that I didn't think of and then I go, oh, fuck, yeah, I remember watching that too. And, you know. Um, yeah. Would you like to start? Yeah, so I, yeah, so I, I, I don't know if we're going... If if we're like saving the suspense for the end, and uh, my number one, <laughs> I mean, it'd be nice if we could <laughs> that, do that. Yeah. But. yeah, so I'll try and start from a lower rung. All right, um, but this was pretty substantial for me. I, I think I probably said this in a like a one of our other episodes, but like my initial exposure to horror was through my sister babysitting. <laughs> She's like seven years older than me. So whenever she like babysat me, she'd always just like watch movies and stuff. And I was just kind of hanging out. And I had really no business watching the movies that she put on. <laughs> but it was awesome because it, when I was a kid, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? You know, um, but so in this slot, in this chunk, I have three particular experiences that I remember, like three memories from uh, her babysitting me that I totally remember. Uh, one of them is Natural Born Killers. All right, yep. Because she put on Natural Born Killers when I was, I don't know, I don't know how old I was, but I remember it It was a very strange thing to watch, especially the scene with the, they're in the restaurant and they kill the waitress because there's no moral, you know. Yeah. Like, they just kill it because they're psychos. And I was like, uh, wow, that was upsetting. <laughs> and the, But yeah, no, so Woody. Woody and... Um, and Juliet Lewis. And Julia, yeah, and... Uh, in Natural Born Killers, which was one of the babys- babysitting uh, horrors that I, <laughs> that I got to witness. The other one, or there's two more. Then there was, um, I remember one that was in particular, just the scene at the beginning of the movie where this priest hangs himself. And it's uh, Lucio Fulci, City, City of the Living Dead, which I can't really recall. I just remember that scene of the priest hanging himself and being like, Again, like wow, I'm I'm supposed to just be playing with Legos here. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then the third of that series is 
her putting on Tetsuo the Iron Man. Nice. <laughs> Which is was in, was actually probably so insane that I couldn't even process it, I think, when I was younger. So I was just like, okay, I don't know what the hell is going on. But then coming back to it later, like renting it much later and being like, oh, <laughs> this is sick. Yeah. <laughs> so that one. But who knows what these. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. What were you going to say? I was gonna say, who knows what these imprinted on my, on the my my brain <laughs> at those times. I guess it's it's it'll be out tomorrow from the time we're recording this. But like, Tetsuo did come up in our episode on um, Existence with Sam. That all three of us had that as a. I mean, I think you you were probably the youngest, but um, yeah. That, yeah. that that made some big impression on all three of us. So I can yeah. I can say that one place it led was to our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful, man. <laughs> that all three of us, something happened to our younger brains because of that movie that made us at least able to look at, at each Dude. other and be like, you've seen it. You've been yeah, there. Yeah, we know. We know. That's um <laughs> and that's cool your sister was like into fucking Lucio Fulci. That's Yeah, she was she was doing like she was doing proper horror. Yeah. She was like I remember when I was a she was like she was definitely like let's not go with the trending stuff. I remember I bought a I bought a pair of Doc Martens when I was a teenager and she was like, why don't you just get combat boots? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, combat boots would have been more economical. Yeah. You go but, to the um, surplus yeah. store or whatever. And yeah. So she knew, she knew what was up. She, I think she was into horror for a while. She was like a metalhead too at that time. Uh, like cannibal corpse and like death metal and stuff. So I got, I got a lot of influence from that, from her at the time. Yeah, I mean, horror and metal really do go, go hand in hand. Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, not not for everybody, but it does feel like that's a common enough thing that somebody is either big into metal and then they start, oh, a bunch of these bands are named after movies or are, yeah, you know, whatever referencing movies. I want to go watch those movies or read those books, or the other way around, where you're, you know, into these movies and things, and then you start hearing this heavy dissonant you know, music and you want to go that direction too. Even though it's relatively rare that you find a horror movie that actually has a metal soundtrack. Yeah, right. Because it, it's like, well, I, that's a, a thing that I noticed with these early movies too, is it was such a musical influence on me too, just because of like synthesizer soundtracks, man, you know? Yeah. I, the mood of it, the mood was always just like some strange like muted piano and some synthesizers and wind sounds and like yeah just a drone yeah yeah the drones in those movies were like hugely influential to my music the way that i approach music and stuff did you you know that band over no i'm not familiar they're they're a norwegian like they they started as a black metal band like in that that kind of they're okay they're not the full on first wave like dark throne and mayhem and stuff but yeah. they're still like 90s and then then they made like a couple of albums that are black metal and then it seems like they just get we're like okay we're done with that let's just do whatever we want now yeah um so that a lot of the stuff it, it's kind of, it's all over the place in like a really good way where it's like oh this one's all electronic this one sounds like a faith no more record this one sounds like oh nice they made a record with sun um oh, really like t that record terrestrials uh, i'm not familiar with that one actually it, 
It's like a, I actually hadn't listened to it until last week. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> I knew Ulver, and of course I knew Sun, but I had never listened to this one until uh, the other, yeah, a few days ago. And it's the cover is like a it's just sort of geometric shapes and kind of a goldish, golden brown with orangey red shapes on a field. Whatever. It's good. But I was, you know, I, so I listened to that this past week and it made me think like, oh, this is from like 10 years ago. What's more recent over stuff? And their most recent record from last year is called Scary Muzak. <laughs> <laughs> and it has a picture of a jack-o'-lantern on the front. <laughs> and the, the, the album copy says like an homage to our formative experiences with the music of John Carpenter and Goblin yeah. and, you know, all the people doing scores to these iconic you know, largely late 70s, 80s horror movies. And it just is interesting. This is a very roundabout way of saying it's interesting how even when the horror music, even though the, the horror movie influence seems most felt in metal, the music to those movies is most of the time synth stuff. Yeah. And feels like it has more to do with like Tangerine Dream. Yeah. Or Klaus Schulze or stuff like that or Emerson Lake and Palmer. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, then it then it does with Dark Throne. Yeah. Or even it's Black Sabbath or something. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think I got into Tangerine Dream and like, you know, stuff like that because of this uh this love I had for this kind of horror music soundtrack stuff. Yeah, which feels like I mean this is a whole other thing cuz I have to I do have to stay on topic. I can very easily go very far <laughs> yeah. off topic here, but it does feel like there's something there that like that, you know, Tangerine Dream coming out of that much more hippie, psychedelic kind of scene. Yeah. Uh I've only ever had bad psychedelic experiences, and so there's something <laughs> that feels really appropriate to me about taking those kind of genre hallmarks and making them sickening and, yeah. and yeah. dark and unpleasant that feels much more accurate than the sort of uh, cosmic thing of like, oh, cool, man, I'm just drifting in space looking at a nebula. I'm like, oh, God, I'm in space. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The blackness is unending. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> You know, time is infinite and I have all of it to suffer. Yeah. You know, so then having something like the Tangerine Dream influence in a in a movie about getting murdered yeah. <laughs> feels much more appropriate for my experience. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, those are, let me see what, I mean, yeah, if we're doing like, if we're doing, I mean, all but one of these for me is, you know, are from my, like childhood, and then okay. I'm gonna say the the biggest one is is like when I was a teenager. Um, yeah. So I'm gonna I'll go with sort of a similar thing of like the inappropriate, uh, you know, your sister babysitting you and having inappropriate <laughs> programming on. <laughs> um, I have no siblings, but when I was growing up, my cousin, who is a year younger than me, lived like two blocks away from the house that we lived in, and um, so it was kind of a you know. The the closest thing, I guess, to like a sibling type relationship that I feel like I had because, you know, he'd he and his dad would come over all the time and uh, I'd end up watching the X-Files with his dad a lot. And we'd, you know, we all got really into the X-Files. So that's a formative thing um, yeah. of its own. But this would have been I don't know exactly, but I I 
the house, we moved out of that house when I was seven. So this would have been sometime before I was seven. Uh, that my cousin and I and my mom and my cousin's dad, who is not my mom's brother, um, were, were hanging out. And I think, like, my mom and my cousin's dad were, like, making us dinner or something like that. So my cousin and I were sitting on the couch and flipping through the TV. It was like, oh, we found something, you know, some cartoon is on or some appropriate show. And then it went to commercial and we were like, uh, commercials, change the channel. And of course, this is well pre there being any kind of menu or indication of what would be on the other channels. You just go channel up, 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 or down, 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 down. Right. So we switched to some, whatever the first channel we found that didn't have commercials on it was like, it was like, oh, there's a there's a kid and he's this looks like a movie and there's a kid and he's in his in a house and he's going to the bathroom and there's like sort of ominous music, and the kid washes his face and he looks up into the bathroom mirror and his face is turned into a corpse and it's leering at him and it's and we had stumbled upon Poltergeist two, oh um, nice, on TV oh. and it freaked the shit out of us um we we i'm i'm sure we just started if not screaming at least like "Ah, change it change it (laughs) put it back to the commercials (laughs) whatever and then one of one or both of our parents were like hey guys what's going on we were like there was something really really freaky on the the tv and then they went and looked and they're like oh yeah this is a movie called poltergeist it's the sequel to a movie called poltergeist like and then the whole parental reassurance of it's not real it's <laughs> all that stuff yeah um but that made i know it for for both of us to an extent but for me for a long time after that um seriously afraid of mirrors dude yeah i have a mirror one it's not i actually don't have it in my but i have a mirror one at, is it at the end of uh fa- is it phantasm phantasmagore wait was it wait what is that one the funeral one Phantasm. Phantasm? Is it Phantasm or Phantasmagoria? With, with the with the silver balls? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah, Phantasm. Phantasm. Okay, it's just Phantasm. There was a video yeah. game that my sister had <laughs> named Phantasmagoria. Oh. That was a PC game that was like all brutal tests. Oh. <laughs> um, but no, at the end of Phantasm, like a character looks in the mirror and something comes through the other side of the mirror and pulls them. Through. Yeah. So yeah, like for a long time, whenever I washed my face, <laughs> yeah, I'd be afraid to like wash my face and clothes. I'd wash it really quickly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that was and that was the thing. It's like it's this. It's how mundane. You know, we're we're two whatever a five year old and a four year old. I guess I could look up when Poltergeist two came out. But anyway, mm. um, you know, we were we were young kids. We're watching. We see this clip of this movie. We see another young boy. There's an, an identification. Oh, he's like us. Going, he's in a house like where we live. He's going to a bathroom like we do. He's washing his face like we do. Oh fuck! His reflection has turned into a ghoul. Yeah, you know. And then it changes back. And then it, you know, the whole did that really happen? Am I going crazy? Question. And so it was like every part of it was so mundane and relatable. Yeah. That then it's like, wait, am I going to turn into a ghoul? <laughs> Everything else in this is something that's that I've experienced. <laughs> you know, am I right? What if the next time I go into the bathroom? I remember we had this that house that we lived in. I mean, I assume these things are 
well, I know where a few of them are, but all these these furniture items must be like in the attic of the house where my mom lives now. But I feel like in that house where we lived when I was a little kid, we had a lot of we had a lot of furniture and decor items that had clearly come from like her grandparents or like from many generations back. So we had like an old clock and these several old mirrors and a very old piano, which we still have or she still has. Um, but so we, we had these antique mirrors. And I remember one of them was in this the little hallway that I would have to go down to get to my bedroom. And that I don't think I looked at that mirror full on between the time that we watched, we saw Poltergeist 2 and the time when we moved out of that house. (laughs) Yeah. I think for the next however many years, I just would walk down that hallway with my head facing the other way. (laughs) Um, Dude, yeah. Yeah. So that's the the earliest moment for me, I think, of of like a real, uh, like seeing a horror movie, knowing what it was, and being simultaneously like, I, oh God, this is freaking me out so much, but also I kind of want to see the rest of that movie. Yeah, yeah. Can we go rent that movie? <laughs> yeah. That happened to me actually with Poltergeist, I think three. Like That's the one in Chicago. Is that in Chicago? The one where they're in the the high rise. Yeah, the high rise. And yeah. I, I can't remember it because I all I remember, I was on um, vacation. My dad was on like a bowling trip or something in in Cincinnati. And we were in this hotel that was pretty cool. It was like the hotel had this like walkway between buildings over the street and stuff. So I was kind of like, it was formative. That trip was formative to me in like the sci-fi way too, you know, and like a J.G. Ballard kind of way that I got into later. But when I was a kid, that it that was like, oh yeah, hell yeah. But I remember being in the hotel room and seeing Alien 3, but then flipping the, doing the exact same thing, flipping the channel and Poltergeist 3 was on, and she's like, the little girl's looking out the window or something, and it's, like, terrifying. And yeah. the same thing, I, like, turned it off because I was like, oh, my God, you know? Yeah. I can't watch this. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how yeah. I, I, I watched Poltergeist 2. It was one of the things where, like, I, I know I watched it at some point, after, at some other point in my childhood, teenage years, um, you know, as a way of confronting that... <laughs> terrifying experience and all that but then i know i also watched it a few within the last like five years and i watched all three of the um the original poltergeist and then the the remake one from at some point in the last decade who who knows when that came oh, out. oh i didn't actually i hadn't realized that there was a remake yeah don't worry about it no okay yeah, <laughs> yeah um, of course of course but i was surprised by how bad they all are <laughs> Yeah, they're not good. Poltergeist one too. It's bad. It's 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 bad. I remember putting it on, like later on, and being like, "Oh, this is gonna be good. This is gonna be freaky." I remember I was so terrified of this and watching it and being like, "Oh, yeah, exactly." <laughs> okay, okay. Wait, was Poltergeist two with the with the worm, the tequila worm? Yeah, that was yeah. Okay, yeah. Poltergeist <laughs> like basically Poltergeist one is where they're in the house in like Northridge or Porter Ranch or somewhere in suburban yeah. LA. And it's the they're here, and the and then they yeah. end up in the pool, the the dugout pool with the skeletons in the end. And yeah. then Poltergeist Two is like we we moved away, and we're we're trying to make a clean start. But then um, Zelda Rubinstein, the psychic medium, is like, 
oh, something is still following them. I have to go find the family and help them. And then the third one is like, no, seriously, we're getting as far away as possible. We're going to live on the hundredth floor of a (laughs) sky rise in Chicago. And Zelda Rubenstein is like, they're still coming for you. (laughs) Um, It's like, maybe you keep bringing them to us. Yeah, I know. Maybe just leave these people alone. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so that's my first one. What, What do you got next? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah, it did bring up a number. I had to re- like as you were talking, I was like, oh, and I had to change the whole. <laughs> I changed my whole list. <laughs> so I'll have some honorable mentions at the end, I guess. But yeah. uh, one that I realized, which was really significant for me, was the Tales from the Crypt television show. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah. Um, there was also the cartoon that I was into on Saturday mornings. I would watch those, but. The Tales from the Crypt television show, I remember watching with my dad when my dad would babysit me. Um, And it was, I remember this one particular episode, which was, which I remember was really freaked me out. It was like, um, this guy was a logger and he only used an axe, you know, like he was like an old school logger and all the other logger dudes were like, no, we use chainsaws now. We got to use chainsaws. And he's like, no, I'm old school. And he's like the fastest chopping, <laughs> you know, wood chopping dude in the in logger town. And uh, yeah, so then the story ensues and, you know, shifty characters. It's kind of like his wife or someone cheats on him uh, with a, a fellow logger. And then they kind of conspire to kill him but they wind up blinding him somehow. And I remember the very end of the episode, he's blind, but the other loggers, like the friends of the blind guy, are like showing him how to use a chainsaw. Like, this is how you do it. And he's going through and he's going through the log. And then it pans down and inside the log is tied up the two the two people who betrayed him. <laughs> so he's about to cut him in half, you know? Yeah. And I was like, that is fucking brutal <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know but they but those those episodes always were kind of like they had the shock at the end and stuff yeah. i remember that stuff so yeah that those were pretty important to me and the crypt keeper was fun oh and the crypt keeper yeah the, his like jokes and yeah everything yeah after the episode ends you know yeah and it's <clears throat> i've never actually known quite what the i want to say that tales from the crypt was kind of of always like a long running companion competitor, whatever you would call it to um, like the EC comics, like mm. creep show type thing. Yeah. Um, like I think that there were tales from the crypt comics from the same time as those original EC horror comics. I might be wrong. And it's just like a later thing where they're, Oh, remember those EC comics? Remember the movie Creep Show? Remember the movie Creep Show too? Let's make a series like that, but not have to license anything. So instead of yeah the instead of the EC comics ghoul, we've got the Crypt Keeper, and instead of yeah whatever. But uh, I also might be I, I don't I don't know. I think you're but. I think you're right. But like commercially, then Tales from the Crypt got way bigger, way bigger. Yeah, because then they um, had they had like the movies. They made movies and, and stuff. Like the whole franchise yeah. kicked off. I mean, the the I I do always remember not because it was good, but the um, bordello of blood. Oh yeah, yeah. With with Dennis Miller. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think that's how I learned the word bordello. 
<laughs> I think I, yeah. I like saw the the trailer for that and was like, "What's a bordello?" And like <laughs> went to the dictionary and was like, "Oh, okay, oh, okay." Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, either way, I I do that. That was a thing. Like, what the thing that they both have in common, like Creepshow, those EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt, is like that really rare mixture of being like being properly fucked, but also fun and funny. Yeah, yeah. Which feels like, comparing like to the metal thing again, which feels a bit like, you know, Cannibal Corpse or something, where you're like, okay, these these album covers make me really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These absolutely. are really harsh and everything, or even parts of like the show Metalocalypse, for example. There are parts yeah. where I'm like, wow, that's really horrifying. but then it's also funny and (laughs) yeah you know that spirit of like the the sort of funhouse spirit is there yeah and it's just that really uncommon balance for stuff that never tips fully into oh this is a joke yeah you know um or this is so serious that now having the slightly the, the cartoonish and humorous aspects feel out of place yeah they always feel appropriate yeah, absolutely. A certain like uh, gallows humor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Totally. Um, yeah, no, definitely. So for another, I guess my my second thing is also uh, also involves a, an animated TV show from when we were kids, which was do you, do you remember the the Beetlejuice cartoon? Dude, <clears throat> yeah, I can't recall. I can't recall any of it. Like, I can't recall what it was like. It's another one where, I mean, I watched, there, there are two episodes from it that, that's, that stick out in my mind, like that I've, I've never forgotten. And so I have watched those relatively recently. Like I found them on YouTube or wherever and watched those and was, was sort of like going back and revisiting the poltergeist episodes. Like, Oh, this is bad. (laughs) Like, yeah. Oh. This show isn't, this isn't like a, 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 a Doug or a Ren and Stimpy or, whatever, where you're like, oh, wow, there was actually something going on here. It was kind of just a, what feels like actually a weirdly late cash grab. Oh, really? You know, like it didn't come out because everything moved slower then, I guess. But like, yeah, it was clearly somebody being like, oh, so Tim Burton made this movie with these fun characters. What if we sort of made it more kid friendly and didn't get any of the people who actually were involved in the movie to do the voices and we made it like a animated sitcom. Yeah. Where Beetlejuice is sort of <laughs> Lydia's sitcom. boyfriend, but <laughs> but also she's clearly like 14 <laughs> or something. I don't Yeah. Yeah. I guess yeah, he's dead. I'm not thinking so, too much about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> but anyway, there are there are there are two episodes of this show that really made an impact on me. One was an episode where they they just tell the the legend of Brigadoon. Uh, it's a Celtic legend, let's say, of you know of a village that disappeared into a fog, into a supernatural fog, and what wasn't seen for I forget exactly a, a century or something like that. And that then, like the the Flying Dutchman or various other things, you know, at at some interval, every century, every fifty years, whatever, it reappears from the mystical fog and you have like a week where it's there or some interval where it's there 
And so people, you know, part of the stories that you find about this town is like somebody, oh, I was walking through the Scottish Highlands and it was misty and foggy and I was looking for a place to an inn and suddenly the fog cleared and there was a town. And I went to the town and everything was a little bit off and I spent the night there and then, you know, they start to realize somehow or they're warned like, oh, I got to get out of this town before you know, nightfall or something like that because otherwise I'm going to disappear with it too. Mm. And so the Beetlejuice episode, it, they they call it um, Brinka Doom, like the Brink of Doom. Oh, and nice. the, the, there's a recurring character who is like a, it's, he's like a cattle, like a, a cow skeleton or a bull skeleton wearing like a kilt, wearing like bagpiper clothing and doing like a groundskeeper Willie voice. <laughs> um, who like keeps warning Beetlejuice like you got to get out of here and so that one I, I don't know why but I just I think that one I remember because of the the Brigadoon legend and that was the way that I got exposed to that legend um, that one is really difficult to watch now it's it's just <laughs> it's an annoying children's show yeah but the one that really stuck with me um, to the point where I still find something horrifying in this is there's another episode where Edgar Allan Poe shows up at Beetlejuice's house <laughs> and Lydia wants to let him in, wants to be like, oh, he's iconic horror author Edgar Allan Poe. We should let him in. And Beetlejuice is like, that guy fucking sucks. <laughs> if you let him in, you'll never get him to leave. <laughs> um, he just whines all the time. <laughs> and so eventually somehow they let Poe in Lydia lets him in or Beetlejuice relents or something like that. They, they let Poe in and he's dragging around this like steamer chest. And he has, you know, he's animated like a droopy dog or like all the appearances of Peter Lorre in, in Looney Tunes cartoon, you know, very mm, yeah. like that. And he, he keeps dragging around this chest and he's, he's always, he's like, don't, don't open the chest. And Beetlejuice, of course, is like trying to open the chest and eventually opens, finds a way to open it. And what comes out of it is named as a nod to, you know, the Poe story, The Mask of the Red Death. What comes out is called The Red Death. And it's just like a red blob with a face, with like a sort of, you know, impassive but stern, like an imperious face on it. Mm. And it floats around the house. Like it floats, it rises up out of this chest and it floats around and it doesn't do anything. Mm. But it makes Beetlejuice, like, regret what he has done. It makes everything turn, like, harsh. Like, suddenly everything sucks <laughs> when this thing has come out of this chest. And so then, of course, they're like, you know, Poe is like, you let it out, what's going on? And and I, I'm sure it's like Lydia is the only one who knows how to get it back into the chest and then Poe goes off and it has a happy ending. But just something yeah. about this, this, this red face orb thing floating around and just making everything horrible. Yeah. Really, really stuck with me. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like yeah. that's the same, like my, my 10 year old self or whatever watching this, what I now feel from somebody like Thomas Ligotti yeah. is like, that had its root in me with that Beetlejuice episode. Yeah. The unspeakable, like, oppression. Yeah. It's like, it can't really be traced in a, in a mechanical sense. It's just producing some 
bad energy. Exactly. That yeah. it's not like because that's always the thing with with I mean, especially with somebody like Ligotti and a lot of the stories, and it's definitely there in the Beetlejuice thing, is it it's never they don't say like, oh, you let the red death out of the chest, it's gonna eat you. Or <laughs> yeah, you know, it's gonna it, it, they never say why you should be scared of it. Yeah. It doesn't say like it's gonna, it's not a vampire. It's not a zombie that's gonna turn, you're gonna become the Red Death now. It's it's mysterious, but there is like a palpable, tangible quality of wrongness to it. Of just like something has been let out that we do not want let out. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's kind of the main thing in a lot of what gets called cosmic yeah. or nihilistic horror is that sense of we've unleashed something that that we shouldn't have. Yeah. And it's not scary because it's going to hurt you or eat you or turn you into a vampire. It's scary for reasons that language fails to right. explicate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm heaping big praise on the, this one episode on one of episode. Beetlejuice <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> I got to find that, man. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm pretty sure these are on YouTube. I'll, yeah. Whatever of these I can find, I'll, I'll put in the show notes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so what do you got next? That's a good one. Um, I did want to, quickly, I wanted to say when you said the Red Death uh, floating face reminds me of uh, that Mario game. Was it Mario 2? You go down into like a sand dune thing and then there's that like, that The mask. Face. Yeah, the mask. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that always freaked me out when I was a kid. I was like, oh, this... That too. That that was another one where I hated Mario too, um, <laughs> because of those masks and also um, the shy guys. The first that's the first appearance of the shy guys. Oh, shy guy, yeah. And they, I love the shy guys. Like now, I think they're adorable and they make the little noises and they're some of my favorite like minor Mario enemies. Yeah, but something about the way they are in Mario two. Yeah, they're freaky. Just was like, yeah, these guys are freaking me out. Yeah, yeah, Mario 2. So apparently Mario 2 is supposed to be a totally different game. It is like a basically a skinning of yeah. a game called Doki Doki Something Panic. Oh, yeah. I don't know. That is like when you see the original art of it. There, there's a video game podcast called How Did This Get Played mm. that I uh, enjoy. And they talked about this like a few years ago that it is straight up like there was an existing uh, Japanese market game that somebody was like, hey, if we just change the sprites yeah, and make this one Mario and this one Peach and whatever, then we yeah. can release this in the US and Canada or whatever as Mario 2. Yeah. And so that's why there are none of the iconic enemy. There are no Koopas or Goombas or... That's why all yeah. the enemies are weird is because those are the enemies from that original game. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I remember the sound design being pretty sick, though. Like, wow. Oh, yeah. No. Or like there was like like eggs. Like a dude who shot eggs out of his mouth or something. Wow. Um, oh, man. I don't remember <laughs> what that that villain, because she becomes sort of a, a friend in like later Mario games. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember her name, but the dinosaur. Yeah. Sort of dinosaur who shoots eggs at you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that is that a sound. good sound. <laughs> I always liked that sound. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. So, what's next on your list? Unless it's Mario. So I do. I could do. I could do. I'll do two honorable mentions. Okay. Before before getting to the big old. All right. I guess big old ones that were important. Uh, one was the commercial for the movie The Gate. 
<laughs> the like trailer commercial. CanCon. Canadian movie. What's that? CanCon. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, because when I was a kid, the commercial would come on and I'd be like, oh, fuck, I know what's happening. Because I've seen it and I was like, this is the scariest thing. But there's this one part where someone falls and then breaks apart into all those little little creatures. And that scared the shit out of me when I was little. Um, but then I saw the movie and it, again, it was like, oh, this is cheesy, super cheesy. <laughs> but I was convinced that it would it was going to be the scariest thing I think I'd ever seen in my entire life until I actually saw it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the second honorable mention is uh, Dante's Inferno. <laughs> Just the book. <laughs> Just got to get yeah. yeah. Because uh, it was actually one of the first books that I read. I mean, that sounds really pretentious. And I don't <laughs> think I read it well. I did not read it well. I was mostly like, I'm going to read it because I, it was like sheer just willpower to to make words go into my head but not understand them at all until it got to the gruesome parts where they sliced you open and stuff. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, tight. This is what I was waiting for. Right. You know, and then I would just read it. And this was in eighth grade or something. Um, but I really, yeah, I, I it was like the was it, I forgot the dude's name. He's like a famous poet, but uh his edition mm. of uh Pinsky or something. Uh yeah, his edition. But that, yeah, reading that, and then after that, it kind of kicked into. I was like, then I read The Exorcist. Oh yeah. And then I read like a bunch of horror books after that um, to kind of kick it off. That's when I started reading. I think. I mean, it is like The Inferno is not obviously not a horror book, but but it also is, <laughs> um, at least in terms of its influence. Yeah, I was. I was trying to get the horror out of it. I just wanted to, I wanted the crazy dismemberment and stuff. <laughs> um, and not really knowing anything about the poetry and, and the like, the actual art yeah. of the words. I was just like, yeah, let me, let me get to the crazy, you know, tree people. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. The tree people um, are probably the best, <laughs> the best uh, images. Oh, yeah. They, they get them. like gnawed on, gnawed on by birds and stuff. Like yeah. That. Yeah, that one. I mean, I'm with you in the uh, possibly pretentious or precocious or whatever thing because there are two trips to bookstores in malls that are no longer there that have absolutely shaped where my life went uh, because of what I bought. Yeah, totally. The first of those was from one bookstore I bought... Crowley's Book of Lies and mm. Marquis de Sade, 120 Days of Sodom. Nice. Um, <laughs> in the same, like, I think, you know, my, it was like, because, you know, when I was in high school, it was, it'd be like, I couldn't drive and you grow up in LA and you can't walk anywhere and public transportation is, isn't just a joke there. So it'd be a lot of like, it's, it's Saturday night, you know, can my, I'll just get my mom to drop me off somewhere more um populous <laughs> you know okay just leave yeah. me at the mall and then some of my friends will be there and then we'll want you know a lot of the time it'd be like let's actually walk several miles away from the mall and like smoke weed in an alley or <laughs> yeah. something like that but so one of those times you know i think my mom had probably given me some money for like dinner you know and i was like i'm gonna spend this on a fucking Crowley book and a Desaad book. <laughs> um, so there was that. And then, then a couple months later, 
same same school year. This would have been like ninth grade for me. So same zone uh, at a different mall, different bookstore in a different mall, but same kind of situation of spending, you know, my dinner money on books. I bought The Inferno, a collection of William Blake, mm. and Faust. <laughs> you had proper taste. <laughs> so same, I think the same impulse as as you of like maybe a little precocious like I'm gonna read these things that are definitely beyond my like 15 year old mind. Yeah, but basically all of those things except for Desaad have um, stuck have have At lasting. But that's the same with me. I I read 120 days like much later, and it was towards the end of when I was like. Yeah, I think I might be growing out of this just like, you know, torture porn kind of stuff, you know. It's one of those like sometimes it's always funny and I forget exactly. I think it becomes up. He mentions it a lot, but like Robert Anton Wilson will mention like Desaad as a big influence on him. And that's one of those things where I'm like, really? <laughs> I can I can kind of see like because it was an interesting philosophy, like I guess. <laughs> sadism <laughs> yeah. but I mean in the philosophical sense not in the like just being purely sociopathic or something like I that I mean I think he's one of those people who got championed by I mean the, the it's, it's wrong to call it the counterculture because it happened before that like counterculture wasn't really a thing before like the beats I guess but yeah but still the people I feel like Desaad was one of those people who got championed by what we would call like free thinkers or, or liberated people or whatever. Yeah. Who wanted to see him as like, yeah, a figure of liberation. Yeah. Like that he was pushing, pushing us in uncomfortable directions for a purpose. Yeah. And that that purpose was ultimately good because it was breaking us out of like our repressive Christian Monarch, uh, monarchy, you know, all these repressive structures that, that we had had that, you know, anybody who was calling bullshit on the divine right of kings and the sanctity of uh, virginity. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, that anybody like that you would see as being like a precursor to the hippie thing. Yeah. And I feel like it's just a little harder to take in like the 21st century. Yeah. You start looking at Desaad and being like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm probably <laughs> totally. good. Yeah, right. I, I don't I won't kink shame anybody here, but like I think I'm probably yeah. good on this. Yeah, yeah, same. I I feel that way too. I just can't stomach that stuff the, the same way I, I used to. But the joke the joke I have with people or I forgot who I was talking to someone and my friend and I, we came to realize that when you're younger, you can watch really gruesome movies and and have these like really sadistic sort of scenarios, and you could go, "Well, glad I'm not that person," you know. But then you get a little bit older, and you're like, "Wow, that could be me." And then it starts to freak you out a little bit more. <laughs> and so I'm like, "Ooh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to hang with that." <laughs> this is, I mean, I'm in a decent mood right now, so I don't, I, this probably won't be too dark. But like, I remember having this really really, really horrible experience. Uh, like I want to say like 2008 or 2009, somewhere around there where I was, I was driving somewhere and I started to really vividly imagine being crushed. Mm, yeah. I've had I that think, too. I, I want to say it might've been cause like I was stuck in traffic and I was thinking about the claustrophobia or I was experiencing the claustrophobia of being stuck in a really endless traffic jam. Yeah. And 
then somewhere started noticing like I'm in a thing made of metal and plastic and I'm surrounded by all these other things. And like, what if one of these cars just slammed right into me? Yeah. And what if then the other, what if like two of them slammed and like all these scenarios came like unbidden in extreme detail. Yeah. And it, uh, I remember I was like, I was in traffic going to meet someone like, oh, let's meet for a drink or whatever. And like, I showed up in this state of like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> like I ruined this, <laughs> this thing. Cause I'm thinking about like my body turning into goo. <laughs> And I'm trying yeah. to like meet some girl for a beer, or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, I need to go home. I can't do this. Yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. No, I. You know, it's interesting though. Is like I've also had the crush visuals, <laughs> if you'd call it that. Yeah. Um, like, and interesting enough, going back, that is a, that is one of the tortures in Buddhist hells. Yep, is being crushed. So that that goes to make me think that it's probably some kind of like. Uh, I know for, uh, you know, with my lack of understanding, it's like some sort of synesthetic thing, you know, where it's like the brain goes, what if, what if this scenario happened just because it's something, I think it's like Thomas Metzinger, he's, uh, my friend telling me about this, uh, the, he has this idea of the, for, the affordance landscape. Okay. The, the mind will think about everything every possibility because that's the landscape. It has to do that in order to sort of navigate and survive. So even cruel, crazy things, um, like if you go, you go up towards a, the edge of a cliff and you think to yourself like, well, I'm gonna jump off the edge of the cliff. And you gave me this example before too with like the power supplies and modular <laughs> synths, you know? Like what if I just stuck my hand there on that, you know, that live fucking wall outlet? Yeah, when, when I was building my modular synth, like to people who, you're listening to a podcast about horror movies. You know about modular sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, when you're, you have these cases, like a suitcase type thing with racks yeah. in it and you put synth modules into it. And unless you buy a ton of modules all at once, most likely what you're going to experience is a mostly empty case, two or three modules in it. And then the exposed, uh, power rigging so which will include in most cases an internal a very large power supply which will kill you <laughs> if you touch it yeah um or seriously hurt you at the very least yeah i mean especially with diy power supplies some people yeah make like their a own. frack rack type yeah yeah and and there is physically like i think like the i think this the the boards like the 12 volt um stuff uh, this is really nerdy, but the 12 volt stuff, I don't think can kill you if you touch it, but there is two leads that come from the power supply, which is literally just a wire to the wall. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you could, you could kill yourself with that. Um, yeah. And so I remember like, you know, when I was, this would have been around the same, maybe the same year, this would have been the same year as that crush experience, but like yeah. having, you know, a modular synth case with two or three modules in it and a big exposed power supply and feeling like, Aside from uh, consumerism or whatever, one of the main drives for me to fill that case was to stop looking <laughs> at the power supply and thinking, yeah, totally. grab it, grab it, grab it, grab it. Yeah. I should also point out that I don't know if this is a if this is like a generational thing where like people younger than us are better about mental health or if this is something with the the social internet or if I really was just living under a rock with this, but 
Uh, knowing the phrase intrusive thoughts would probably have been helpful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> intrusive thoughts. I yeah. don't feel like nice. I ever heard that phrase until the last couple years. Yeah. Because something like what we're talking about with like grab the power supply or think about being crushed feels like classic intrusive thoughts. Yeah. No, totally. This is what this is what I think uh, goes to that like Thomas Metzinger. I think that, that Thomas Metzinger uh, affordance landscape is that the brain will assume assume what's possible, and one of the possibilities is hopping off that cliff and or sticking your hand into the power supply. You know, or just crazy things like I, the brain. I think tricks themselves. Like when I'd have it's in school in undergrad when I we'd pe- we'd have professional musicians who with these like. instruments, violins and cellos and stuff, playing your stuff. I always like think, what if I just walked up there and grabbed it and smashed it? Or something? I know I had the same you know, like, thing. Yeah, what would they? What would they have it? And it's like, and then you get you get kind of a fear of like, oh my god, am I unhinged? You know, am I like, is something wrong with me? You know, and people get freaked out by that, but I think it's completely normal. I think people just totally. I think this this stuff happens. You know, um, I think it's what you. I think the thought occurring to you is normal and very common and and like a lot of these things it's like what you do with the thought you know if you actually if you actually can't banish the thought of I should smash that dude's violin yeah then you have a problem but if you're just sort yeah. of idly you know you're sitting at the soundboard because you're in the music tech program and you have to do uh, you have to run the board for various rehearsals and things. And you're just looking at all these classical musicians and thinking, there's a million dollars worth of wood in this room. Yeah. What if I just lit it all on fire? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. And th- th- if that's just sort of a fantasy and you think, okay, never mind anyway, you know. Yeah, uh, and you move on. Yeah. You move on, then I think it's, uh, I-, I think it's perfectly healthy. I think I think it's, it's more than healthy. I think it's common in, pretty much almost everyone you know. If they tell you or not, I think pretty much everyone has these these feelings. Some version um, of it. And actually, I right. know this was, I mean, this is, I don't have the details because this is what I'm, I'm getting this from a remembered uh, speech I saw on somewhere on the internet from China Mieville, weird fiction author. Oh, And, and yeah. very buff man, China Mieville. <laughs> <laughs> um, where he talked about I forget what the main subject was, but he he mentioned that um, cephalopods and namely octopuses have, I think that they're the only, he was saying that they're the only thing besides us that shares this that like affordance landscape thing where they're able to think about possibilities where oh, they can yeah. think to themselves like, okay, I'm on the exposed seabed. If I stay here, you know, something could snatch me up. If I go in that cave, I'll be safe. But then a rock fall could make. I've seen caves collapse before, so yeah, they can calculate. Yeah, that they stuff. and that there's. I forget what exactly, but that there are certain things in certain behaviors that octopuses have where they're where that's demonstrated that they that they basically take risks because mm. they're thinking long term because they're thinking like yeah. this might be risky right now but it actually is the better option because of these other possibilities. Yeah, they wow, that's awesome. They can ca- calculate like probability. Yeah. And yeah, like percentages of like Yeah. This is a better this is a better choice. Exactly. Like it might That's why they can yeah. do those sorts of those I mean cuz like rationing food I think would be one of the the most obvious behaviors like that where you think 
most animals are like, I'm hungry, I eat. But if you think yeah. I'm hungry, but there might not be food tomorrow, I'm going to eat half of what I have and I'm going to save half of what I have. And that some yeah. your your basest instinct is screaming at you to be like, you fucking idiot, eat the whole thing. Yeah. You know, you just caught that shrimp, eat the whole shrimp. But then some part of you is saying, well, you know, there weren't very many shrimp. And, you know, the whatever, like something might, humans might be overfishing my habitat. So there are less shrimp. So I have to save the shrimp. And that you're taking a Dude, risk yeah. there by, I'm going to eat less today in the hope that there will be more tomorrow, say. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I know that dogs learning that about like when I'm getting a dog learning that that they do not have that. <laughs> they will I mean they it's the and so it's like interesting because you're trying to train a dog to know a dog's psychology is they absolutely do not know that you give them like a pile of food they will eat it all until they get sick you know <laughs> like uh, uh, they'll they'll do things like over and over without knowing it it's it's very interesting. I mean, yeah, in in, in fairness to dogs, a lot of humans don't have this. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Like, <laughs> as a species, we have it, but as individuals, not all of us yeah. have yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's true. Or even, like, I fight against, like, vices. Yeah, exactly. Know? Like All the time. You yeah. know, don't have another drink. Don't, you know, yeah, don't exactly. eat another sandwich. Don't, whatever it is, yeah. like... Even if we have the capability, that doesn't mean it's automatic. <laughs> yeah. So I did. I did, did want to say this because um, before we move on, I want. I did want to say this about that affordance landscape thing and the being crushed. Uh, the fact that it's a it's this Buddhist hell means it's significant in some way to the human mind. And I was I was thinking about the affordance landscape is that it might be some kind of uh, I don't know like archetypal sense, the fear of being crushed. You know. Because it's been around, it's like probably one of the oldest ways to die. <laughs> you know, either rocks falling on you, boulders or whatnot, you know, things happening like that. But it, I like, I almost wonder if it is hardwired into our brain to imagine these things. And if because of that, that's why there is a hell devoted to that. And that makes me think that the hell is maybe not super literal, but a reflection of psychology once again. We had this conversation yeah. before, but yeah. No, that's, but that like, is, yeah. I mean, I'm reading and then we really should get back on topic, but like, yeah. I'm just about <laughs> yeah. done with, um, what is it called? The Secret Tradition of the Soul, another Patrick Harper book that's oh, um, cool. not about Bigfoot or UFOs or <laughs> anything like that or fairies. Mm. Um, not that I love his books about Bigfoot and UFOs and fairies, but, um, and so I'm in like the last, last stretch of it and he's, he's talking a lot about, um, you know, the types of, those sort of initiatory experiences of, you know, uh, having some kind of, some kind of psychic journeying where, you know, you're dismembered and remade in your, in your new yeah. form so that you can kind of carry out your, you know, magical destiny. This is me trying really hard not to say shamanic because I know that there are problems with that word. <laughs> um, mm, yeah. Or like uh, Osirian. Yeah, he he vibe. brings that up as being one yeah. of the classics, um, the Osiris myth. Um, but yeah, that idea that, you know, in, in lots and lots of traditions, you have some kind of thing where, you know, an initiate is basically killed in a really horrible way, taken apart, reduced to all these, you know, and then rebuilt. And that part, one of the points he's making is that, you know, we in 
Christianity, getting into Christianity and then kind of rational materialism. After that, we've gotten rid of a lot of that stuff for us, you know, you know, that we've gotten rid of a lot of that, but that one of the places where you still find it in a sort of diluted form is in like psychology that, Mm. you know, going to a psychoanalyst and them uh, breaking down your neuroses, you know, that on some level they're doing a similar thing of taking apart your, your personality Mm. and rebuilding it. It's just happening in a much more kind of, it's just happening in a different way. And I guess Harper is saying a less effective way. And as someone with a lot of uh, experience in psychoanalysis, I am inclined to agree Mm. that it is not ultra effective. Mm. Um, Go to therapy though. Anybody list if you, I'm not saying (laughs) that. So Uh, maybe if you're having dreams about being crushed, you should go to therapy. Well, it's strangely enough, I, I should say this about horror in general, since this is like about our formative horror kind of experiences. I think a part of me likes horror because it familiarizes it familiarizes me <laughs> I can't, with yeah, that that's the word with the uh, um, the extremes of human experience, and that makes it ultimately less frightening to me when I have like uh, an act like uh, an association with it already or a touch upon it you know like I will obviously be afraid if something terrible would happen to me but for some reason I find horror kind of comforting sometimes sometimes it's kind of extreme sometimes it's like oh no I'm not in the mood right now for this you know Um, but other times it's like like just having this conversation now and talking about this I do feel a little bit like it's I'm exercising some some evils that's frightened me yeah and i'm getting them i'm sort of digesting them in a new way and it it feels actually positive to me yeah yeah Yeah. no i i agree and i think that's i mean there's this this does get brought up a lot and and i i am aware that there are many cases where this is um, emphatically not the case but um broad strokes at least in my personal experience i will say that the people that i have met through forms of extreme music, metal, harsh noise, industrial music, things like that are generally generally seem more well adjusted <laughs> yeah. than people I have met through pleasant music. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I find I much more that. often uh in in my experience, your mileage may vary whatever allegedly. I'm not slandering anything here, but I have I I would say I have met way more people making very pleasant quote-unquote normal music where it's like i cannot be around this person yeah compared to black metal musicians or harsh noise musicians where it's like this this person is extremely easy to be around (laughs) yeah they are very i mean i remember whatever and lots of anecdotes but you remember that place vacation vinyl yeah yeah i do um it's a record store in la i think it's still there i don't know actually um Anyway, it was a record store owned by uh, Aaron Turner from the band Isis and Sumac and other things. And so, you know, they had a kind of orientation towards, you know, metal and noise and uh, hardcore punk and things like that. But, you know, it was a general purpose record store. And I would go hang there fairly frequently like a decade ago. And, um, you know, there were three or four people who were, you know, the regular clerics. And one of them, like the store manager, was this dude, Pete, from a black metal band called Harasser. And he had a, you know, totally bald, 
huge black beard, you know, piercings, every inch of his body tattooed, you know, camo pants, dark throne shirt, <laughs> you know, the whole, uh, the whole the very in- intimidating metal guy thing. And, um, I remember like one of the first times, you know, he, he was a little gruff, he very ultimately very friendly guy, but, um, little, little gruff. And when I was in the store, he was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. He leaves. And then the, the other guy working is like, you're kind of intimidated by Pete, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm not. He's like, do you want to know what Pete is going, going to do right now? It's like, sure. And he's like, he's going, going home to his apartment where he has four cats <laughs> and he is going to tuck all the cats in on the couch with him in little blankets. And he's going to watch 90210 <laughs> <laughs> because Pete loves 90210. <laughs> yeah. um, he's like, Pete is a vegan. Pete has, has a bunch of cats. Pete, yeah. Has a has a wall like a Hey Arnold style wall with pictures of Jason Priestley on it. Like Pete is a fucking sweetheart. <laughs> That's funny. And I feel like that kind of story is is I, I've met a, a number of a significant number of people like that where <laughs> they have an, an art sort of persona or an arts uh, activity that is very harsh and extreme, and that that seems to be purging something from them. That seems yeah. to be like, I need to do this. You know, I'm I'm into this art and I need to do this thing that is very harsh and out there and weird because this is a this is a part of me, but in my own actual dealings with the world, I am perfectly well adjusted. Yeah. And sometimes even adorable. Like, yeah. <laughs> like Pete tucking his cats in to watch 90210. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's bring this thing to the let's finish okay, this thing. Yeah. So what's what's the big one for you? So the big one for me is of course well cliched, but John Carpenter. <laughs> okay. Yep. Has to be John Carpenter. I mean, you just have to give credit where credit is due. And I think probably seeing Escape from New York in particular, um, but also the thing. The thing is probably my number one or number two movie of all time still. And it has been since I was like in high school. And it's just, I just fucking love that movie. dude. <laughs> it's, it was, it's, it's eternal. It, it's, yeah. it doesn't age. It's, it's perfect. Yeah. And yeah. And I know it's like John Carpenter now is kind of like, uh, he, it is kind of, he's getting a revival in some ways because he's releasing like his music, uh, and he, I actually saw him tour his music. Yeah, I was thinking, gonna, I feel yeah. like you told me that you saw his yeah. show. Yeah. So in some ways, it's like, if, I, I understand that people saying like, what's your biggest horror influence? It's like John Carpenter. It's like, well, it's probably like saying like, what's your biggest like music? Oh, it's the Beatles or something. You know, it's like, oh, that'd be cliche. But the Beatles did rule. <laughs> yeah, it's also the <laughs> fucking Beatles. And it's yeah, right. John Carpenter. Like. Yeah. So for me, I think John Carpenter, um, the whole his whole videography, but particularly Escape from New York for music and vibe, and uh, and the thing for well, pretty much the same, but also just like having such a killer story, and and then of course you know Halloween, which was yeah. everyone's Halloween is like shaped. Now I'm not really actually a fan of Halloween anymore. <laughs> I know because of that. It's that same thing where it's kind of like it's a little too much. You know, every time you go to uh, like fright fest at Six Flags or something, you know, or, or any any Halloween themed thing, you're just gonna hear the the theme music. 
to a degree where I'm it's it's like it's washed over me in such a way where it's I don't even like listen to it anymore. I just recognize it as a signal for this day of the year, you know. Um yeah. But it was growing up was was huge, you know. I mean, if I can if if like a a a West Coast guy can make a a, a statement about the Midwest and all that, <laughs> yeah. I I feel like I do feel like there's a kind of no nonsense quality to John Carpenter. Yeah. That feels like a, a Midwestern thing. Mm, yeah. You know, it's not the it's not the harsher, brasher, like he's a New York guy, bing bong. <laughs> like it's not that shit. Yeah. Uh shout out Coney Island. Um <laughs> you know, and it's not like a West Coast thing. It's not like my like yeah, dude, we're talking about some horror movies, brah. Like, yeah. We're gonna, yeah. You know, yeah. It's not the West, the flighty, hippie, post-hippie <laughs> West Coast thing. It's not the yeah. the harsh East Coast thing. It's it's sort of a, you know, feels very like, my name is John. I'm here to make some movies. <laughs> here you go. <laughs> you know, like. Dude. Oh, which I should, another honorable mention. It's not horror, but it's, horror adjacent is American movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> of course, which I fucking loved. Uh, I mean, but talk about Midwesterners, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> like that, that, that was also an awesome one. But yeah, also I was, um, I was snake Pliskin for Halloween at least two years when Dude, I was a kid. Hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Dude. Those are some of the only Halloween costume years that I can, Remember 100%. Dude, that's awesome. Because I just thought he was so cool. I mean, Kurt Russell in general is just so cool, but... Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Particularly Snake Plissken and that fucking name. Snake Plissken, yeah. <laughs> it, it's so vulgar and, like... <laughs> it's just an awesome name. Plissken. I wonder where they got Plissken. I can't imagine there are any actual people named Plissken. Plissken. <laughs> that doesn't feel like... Yeah. Like a real, or if if that was your name, you probably changed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I'm uh I'm Peters now. <laughs> snake Peters. <laughs> yeah, Snake Peters. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually still, I think somehow I turned that into a, more of a dick joke. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So John Carpenter. That's yeah. It, yeah, it that, is. I mean, it is like the Beatles of horror, but but fuck yeah. you if you don't think the Beatles are. Yeah, that's what I say. Are the best. That's what I say because it was huge to me growing up. Yeah, so had to. So yeah, what about you? For me, I got. I mean, it's maybe a. I feel like there's a, it's a similar sort of obviousness, but maybe a little bit more um, contentious than you know. If if Carpenter is the Beatles, I don't quite know what band. You got this the Rolling Stones. <laughs> no, it's not even that. It's it's like. Um, the ring, the American. Oh, ring. yeah, yeah. Um, because I remember. I mean, I want to do an episode. We have talked about this before. Like, I want to do an episode about uh, the ring because it's really like it is the reason why I'm into this stuff. I mean, all the the other things I've mentioned are like wetting the whistle. You know, like ooh, okay, horror type stuff. But um, the ring, and I do, I'm talking about the American one. I'm talking about the Gore Verbinski one, the one made by the guy who made the. Pirates of the Caribbean movies. <laughs> um, the one with that New Zealand guy who plays the boyfriend who's like a Gap model and is not a good... I'm talking about that one. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So I, I am not picking a a a hip thing. I'm picking a very Hollywood. Re- it's the, it might be the only time where I actually think that the remake is is better than um, the original. I agree that the, the remake is at least equal to the original. And so I, for a music analogy, I'm going to say that what I have that what I, when I'm picking the ring here, I'm talking about the Johnny Cash cover of her <laughs> is as yeah. good as the Nine Inch Nails one. Yeah. They're very different. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're different things. And, uh, but, but, you know, the rare case of a cover being as good as the yeah. original, this is the rare case of a remake being as good as the original. And for me, more impactful than the original. I agree with that. I, I, I'd say I, I enjoy the American one more. Yeah. Personally, personally. I th- I thought it, and it was hugely impactful. Yeah, to me I mean I for for other there's other you know like Japanese horror movies that have there are other Japanese horror movies that have made much bigger impacts on me and um, you know Pulse or Noroi the Curse or any or Marabito or you know there's there's tons of more obscure. See, I'm getting my cred back. <laughs> By naming uh, yeah. <laughs> more obscure <laughs> Japanese things. But but no, like when the early No, you know, I'm gonna leave this story for the real episode because it's it's too much of a thing. We've gone on too long. I'm just gonna say it's the ring. It was <laughs> hugely impactful on me. Um my friend Rob, who I have mentioned on the podcast before, who might listen to this, um, we were equally obsessed with it and it really sort of cemented our our, you know friendship bond Mm. um at the time we saw the movie every friday for seven weeks in the theater holy shit that rules we we saw it opening night we were we were like super excited about it so we went to see it opening night we were like that's awesome and then of course you know our teenage brains over the course of the week are thinking well wait we just fucking saw the cursed tape does that mean we have seven days (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we were like, we have to, we have to pass the curse on. So every week for six more weeks, we would take someone. Yeah. It was like, okay, <laughs> which awesome. of our friends hasn't seen the ring yeah. yet? Let's go see it. And it was, you know, we were not serious, but that there was a part of this that was just, we love this movie and we want to see it again. But there was another part of it that was like, maybe we have to pass the curse on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by showing it to other people. So, <laughs> that rules, man. <laughs> Um, that made a huge, huge impact on me. Um, I still, unlike, you know, the Poltergeist movies or, or the Beetlejuice cartoon, uh, I think the ring holds up. I watch it every, every so often Yeah, and it's still good. I'm even amazed at how well the effects hold up. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's one moment, which I will get in whenever we do actually do the episode, I'll get into this stuff, but there's only one thing in it where I'm like, oh, that's an early 2000s computer effect Mm. and i don't that doesn't feel great but so much of it is so uh has managed to hold up so well yeah Uh, yeah i agree so yeah i think that's those those are those are they (laughs) yeah (laughs) who talks like that (laughs) you remember the venture brothers oh yeah yeah when the, the the two henchmen, one of them is like, look, you know, this is my weapons cache. And then the one guy is like, are those them? And the other one is like, are these they? <laughs> it's like, who talks like that? 
<laughs> that show was hilarious, man. I have to go back and watch those. I think, I mean, while while I'm saying contentious things that are going to ruin my cred, I actually think that might have been the best, the best Adult Swim thing. Really? Yeah. Um, like all in in terms of not in terms of having the biggest impact, not in terms of of having the best. Like like some other things have like bigger moments, like a bigger episode or a bigger thing where I'm like. Oh my God, that's amazing. But as far as the Venture Brothers never annoyed me. Yeah. Yeah, same. Tim and Eric, Metalocalypse, you know, Aqua Teen, they all have things where I'm like, okay, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, yeah. this is this is stupid now. Where the Venture Brothers was like, no, nah, I'm just into this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the writing and execution of, of the dialogue was hilarious. It was just so, so hilarious and quick somehow. Yeah. And music by J.G. Thurwell. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, fetus, so iconic, original industrial artist. And then, you know, shit like the episode where where David Bowie is like the leader of yeah. the evil council <laughs> and he brings like Iggy Pop and Brian Eno with him. Yeah, yeah. And Iggy Pop is like shirtless and, and nonverbal and he's like the attack dog. Yeah. And it's like they have their warm jets that they like, here come the warm jets. <laughs> It's like all the, I'm like, how can I not love this? Like, That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll put uh, you know I'll put up at least a list of all the things that we've that we've mentioned here for our our formative you know horror experiences and all our tangential bullshit. Um, I'll try to break yeah. it all down. I know some of these things you know none of what we've talked about is terribly obscure. I feel like these these should all be findable movies and tv series for people um if you want to check yeah. these things out and uh yeah oh yeah so we'll we'll be back uh with more of these and more episodes where we watch movies and uh yeah yeah <laughs> hell yeah all right <laughs>